This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com, where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Atlanta, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Wednesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. John Taylor, old friend, Jonathan Taylor Thomas talks Major League Baseball. Chicago White Sox edition. John, good evening. How are you? Pretty good. I like that we've just followed up one Chicago team with the other. It was Chicago team everyone forgets think. about that nobody likes. <laughs> I don't think it was either, but um, it's, I just feel like it's funny how that happens where this is just something that White Sox fans probably have to deal with all the time, which mm-hmm. is the White Sox just invariably and inevitably following up the Cubs. Even though I, even though honestly, like if, if just looking at those two teams, I'm honestly way more excited in and interested in whatever it is the White Sox are going to do this year than the Cubs. That's for sure. Hmm. That's I don't know. I just I mean the the Cubs just have more top end talent. They have more proven talent. They have more veterans. They have more people that I, I don't know. The White Sox just the White Sox are in that Philly zone for me. They're like my the the AL Phillies. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I think I think the only difference there is the Phillies just kind of seem like a dysfunctional, dumb organization, and the White Sox seem like a slightly more functional, somewhat smarter organization. Uh, there definitely was a period there. I think, you know, they were kind of going through that tear down when people were questioning like, Hey, like this was not actually a bad team you're tearing apart. It just needed some help. Like, why are you blowing it to pieces? And certainly some of the free agent decisions they made uh, before this off season, I actually thought they had a really good off season, but I, I imagine we'll get into that. I thought the, obviously the off, the Manny Machado, Bryce Harper off season was a whole, was a huge disaster for them. You know, I thought, and I imagine they thought too, that they could come away with at least one of those guys. They didn't. Um, and I think there's also an element of, you know, they, they haven't really, you know, they have all those, they have the big prospects in their system. Obviously the, the Chris Sale trade played a big part in that. So did the Adam Eaton trade, but they hadn't, they haven't really drafted all that well recently. A couple of their first round picks have not particularly planned, panned out. Um, some of that's injury. Some of that is, Seems like development issues, but on the whole, I mean, you know, they, they do seem to have turned things around. Like I said, they had a, what I consider to be a, a pretty good, if not great off season. Um, 
There's still, I, I think if you look at that roster, there's still to me, they still to me feel like they're missing like that, that real home run like player. I think Mankata is probably as close as it gets just in terms of ceiling. Um, although I guess Luis Robert is, is right there. And Eloy Jimenez, at least with the bat is probably close to that too. But, you know, you look at that lineup, it's solid. You look at their rotation, it's fine. You look at their bullpen, it's, it's okay. So I, I can see the Philly side of it. I can see that this is a team where over the course of a full season, you know, they, they don't, I, I had forgotten they were not particularly good last year. They only won 72 games. I think you probably would have expected something in the range of, I think I would have put their floor, if assuming, you know, they, they didn't have bad injury luck, at about 77 wins for a full season this year with a chance of being kind of one of those, like, 82 to 85 win surprise wildcard contenders. Mm. Um, I think that's still pretty much where they're at in terms of now this much shorter season. I think the one thing that really hurts them, because I know we, we kind of talked about it when we did, when we talked about the Diamondbacks, because that was before we knew any of the details of the season that was coming, is not having the expanded playoffs. If they, if we had gotten expanded playoffs and we'd have you know, two extra teams per league, I think that's what it was going to be. It was going to expand to whatever it was. I think I would have been in on them as a as an actual wild card contender. As is, boy, they're they're gonna have a hard time. And we can get into the details of what their schedule would theoretically look like. But the hard thing for them is right now they're kind of in that like twenty eight to thirty two win zone. Mm-hmm. You know, roughly a five hundred team. Yeah. That a lot of the non elite AL teams are at, like you know, Cleveland, um, the Angels, Texas. Uh, the Red Sox, you know, the, they're kind of in that range. I think certainly, um, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone would think that they're up there with the elite teams in the American League. You know, the Yankees, the the, the Astros. The, no, I don't think not, they're any threat no. to take the division. Twins. Although, again, this is in a short season, anything could happen. I'm just, and I'm looking now at the, the, the fan graphs until they got there. Right, like the Twins just became this juggernaut. True, and but, like it had to just happen for us to be like, okay, the Twins are here now. Yeah, and I, I don't think the, the White Sox are a real threat to the division, but you look at like the projected standings and, and playoff odds from uh, Fangrass, they've got the Twins winning 34 games and the White Sox winning 31. Yep. That's not a huge gap, you know? No. And, and I, I know we, I briefly mentioned the schedule. It's obviously going to help that 20 of those 60 games for the White Sox is you're going to be against the Royals and the Tigers. Yeah. Add... Add another four to six. I, I can't remember exactly what the breakdown is going to be because since they're only playing the other central teams, they're going to get let's average it on call it five five games against the Pirates. Yeah, you know maybe four, maybe six. I I don't know off the top of my head, but at the very least, like even even leaving Cincinnati, because I think Cincinnati is kind of a similar team to Chicago and kind of one of those yeah dark horse wild card contenders where they had a pretty good off season and their roster still has some holes, but it's a pre- they have a pretty good floor and a decent ceiling. You know, you're talking about almost half the White Sox schedule coming in three of the worst teams in baseball. That, and obviously, like, the Twins and Indians also get that advantage. Um, and it may not even be as big an advantage as, say, like, a team like the Rays that gets to face, you know, the Orioles and the Marlins, plus a, a weak Red Sox team and a kind of not quite there yet Blue Jays team. Or, or the A's who get to face, you know, the, the Mariners and the Giants and the Rockies. But the schedule definitely does them a favor there. The central teams, and you look at both central divisions, they're pretty they're pretty tight because you know they're all all the teams near the top of the division are are all pretty good, and then the teams at the bottom of the division are all terrible. So they're all going to beat up on the bad teams and kind of I think for the White Sox it's really just going to come down to how good can they be 
in those 20 games that they're going to have to play, assuming we get a, a full season, against the Twins and the Indians. That's where it's all going to come down to, is those 10 games apiece against the two teams ahead of the division. You know, they, they come out ahead in those, you have a real contender. They, they don't do that, then I don't really think you see a playoff team on the south side. Yo Mikata is how close to being a top 10 player in baseball? I think the if there's if there's one thing I think probably holding him back right now it's it's probably his defense which is not to say he's a bad defender um, just that he's not a great one I think some of that is he's just kind of moved all over the diamond both as an amateur and as a professional he hasn't really I don't think had time to kind of settle fully into one position last year was his first year playing third base and he graded out pretty much like slightly below slightly negative by by defensive run saved. Um, granted, we're only talking about 1,100 innings at the position, so you know there's plenty of time for him to grow and learn. But you know he he rate especially well at second base before that. Um, but other other than that, I mean he's got the the big thing for the big thing you look at just in looking at his season last year is that his strikeout rate went way down, um, which is obviously like that's kind of the key thing you look at if if you want to see like oh what you know how how is this player going to perform? Like, is there a real kind of breakout potential? And granted, like there, I mean, I want to say, honestly, the, the strike rate went down, but it went down from 33%, which is awful to 27%, which is still not very good. You know, he only walked in 7% of his plate appearances and, uh, and he had a batting average on balls in play of 400. So there's some stuff going on there that, you know, he, he needs to keep bringing that strikeout rate down. He needs to walk more. Some of that balls in play luck, uh, won't be there as much, but the dude hits the ball hard. Um, he he really just he has a ton of power. If he can find a way to make more contact and swing and miss less, then I think you're talking about a guy who who reasonably, you know, can get into that kind of top fifty, top seventy-five conversation, top ten, unless he comes a better uh, he. He needs to basically get rid of the strikeouts. Yeah. Become a, a better defender at third base. And honestly, he needs to be stealing more bases. He only stole 10 bases last year, which, I mean, this is a dude when he was signed by the Red Sox where people were talking about, you know, potential 30, 30, 40, 40 guy. You know, I granted, he, I'm not sure if that's really accurate. The dude is built like a strong safety. Like he is absurdly jacked. So I don't necessarily, any, you know, by sprint speed, he's. He's above average in the 72nd percentile. He's not a Billy Hamilton type burner. Um, but it's definitely the, the, the potential, it seems like it's definitely there for him to run more and to steal more. Um, yeah, I mean, just, you, you look at his numbers really, but the hard hit rate, the exit velocity, the you know expected batting average slugging, weighted on base average, barrel percentage, all really, really high. All stuff you love to see, it's really just the strikeouts. He strikes out too much. He swings and misses too much. He doesn't make enough contact. You know, that needs to change. And some of that, too, is, you know, he, he got better hitting breaking balls last year. Still needs to improve on that. Still needs to get better at that. But really, like, all the tools are there. Like, again, this is a guy when he, you know, got signed out of Cuba. Was a, everyone was talking about as a five-tool player. You know, a, a future perennial all-star. And I think it's there. You know, it's just a matter of can he figure out the plate discipline aspect. And if he can, then, yeah, we're talking about a guy where the, the, sky, is, the sky is the limit are we sure he's lifting enough weights 
I mean, that dude looks like he could tear a phone book in half. It's stupid how how yoked he is. Like, it's it's always funny. It's like all the Cuban. No, I don't say all the Cuban dudes. It's an unfair generalization. But so many of the Cuban dudes in baseball are just ripped. Like they they just look like they just spend tw- like six hours a day just lifting weights. Just like, girls. Yas Yasiel Puig, just a huge dude. Aroldis Chapman is just. Aroldis Chapman looks like he just he does a thousand push-ups a day or something yeah. like. Uh, Jorge Soler built like a refrigerator. Like Chapman, all these he doesn't dudes, wear like, the the uniform. Like he looks smaller in a baseball uniform because it's really baggy. But there was that picture of him, and I think was it in front of his new car or something recently. And it's like, oh no, this dude's built like a like Tio. Like this guy just wears yeah. clothing doesn't that does not fit his figure. And that's the thing. Like if, it's one of those things where if the NFL ever did ma- or, or any, any major college program ever did manage to find its way into Cuba for recruiting purposes, they would stumble upon a gold mine of linebackers, strong safeties, free safeties, and defensive ends. At least in terms of the athletes down there, because you look at the guys who play baseball, and they are all just insanely huge and strong. Which, I mean, again, that's not you know not every not every Cuban player is Mister Universe, but. Mankata is definitely one of those dudes who is just big and strong. And the thing is, he's only 25. You know, he just turned 25 uh, about a month or so ago. So, you know, he's he's not even close to what his theoretical peak would be. True. So there's a, there's a lot of room there. There is a lot of room. Um, and I mean, this is, I mean, it's what you expected because this is a guy, again, when he got signed out of Cuba, was supposed to be, he was the number one prospect in baseball when he got traded. This is what the White Sox thought they were going to get. Now it's, I guess you could think of it, you could look at it two ways. One, he's still got a lot of improvement to do, but the other way is, you know, for all the improvement he still needs to do, he had a 141 OPS plus last year. He was a five-win player. That's phenomenal, or not phenomenal, but that's great. That's already great. And like I said, some of that is built on a probably, you know, a batting average of balls in play he probably can't replicate, even though some of that does seem to be he just hits the ball stupid hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just not going to succeed as a regular, you know, with a walk rate of, seven percent you know the list of guys who can get away with that is you know who can walk that little and still produce above averages it, it, it's not a long list you know um just looking at it now just seeing you know what what guys last year who qualified for the batting title had a walk rate under seven percent who put up above average offensive numbers and we, funny enough one is tim anderson who another uh, big batting average on balls and play guy but with, who doesn't have Mankata's power, so a little shakier there. Um, Starling Marte, Javi Baez, you know, what is the Jose Bria, what is with the White Sox? And there's Eloy Jimenez. What is with the White Sox and never walking? <laughs> it's, it's funny. I mean, I think Adam Dunn ruined all of that for them. Like, it's not impossible, certainly, but you either have to make a ton of contact or have a ton of power, because the other thing is there are not many guys on this list who have a strikeout rate above 25% either. Like Tim Anderson out 21% of the time. That's not great, but it's still better than 27%. You know, at that rate, you're looking at basically Javi Baez. Mm-hmm. And Baez is a better defender than Mankata. So, I mean, maybe maybe that's, maybe that's maybe the White Sox are fine with that. Maybe they're fine with just having the younger, not as good defensive version of Javi Baez. I, I probably would be. I mean, that's still but a great player. It's a great player. I mean, but it's also, it's a rare skill set to pull off and succeed with. And really of the guys on this list, Baez is just about the only one who's really succeeding or has succeeded 
with a walk rate that low and a strikeout rate that high. You know, the other the other guy on this list, I think, would, I mean, Eloy Jimenez, who, who I imagine we'll talk about, um, obviously, because he's a huge part of what they're going to be doing this year and going forward. But it, it's just really hard to do that. You know, it, it's insanely hard to match that high a strikeout rate with that low a walk rate and still be uh, an above-average offensive player. But it, it's doable. I mean, we saw it. And Baez proves that it's doable. It's just it's rare, and it's not really something you want to bank on. Ideally, you'd rather he just start walking more and striking out less and making more contact. Gio Gonzalez, is in their 2020 rotation true or false? True. I actually I, I had forgotten about that until I looked up their depth chart because same I can't uh, the White Sox they, they did a they did a fair amount of turnover in the offseason. Um, they're they're definitely saw Gio Gonzalez there and did a little bit of a double take. Yeah, totally forgotten that they signed him probably for not very much money. It is. Um... Joe Gonzalez, man. Like, that's in the back of the rotation. Maybe he has some Anibal Sanchez from the Braves a couple years ago. Look, um, it's funny when we were talking about Makata and everything else in that trade and how we were viewing Makata four years ago and stuff like that. But, like, something I was thinking about when I was thinking about the White Sox and what we're looking for from them in 2020 is that the Chris Sale trade was 2016. It was four years ago now. They've had a long, long time to figure this out. And we're at that point where it's just like, okay, is Han and Williams going to figure this out? Like, this is a, they got Luis Robert, and we're going to see what happens there. Because um, I think we talked about a lot about Makata, but I really want to get your perspective on Robert, because, is it Robert or Robert? I go back and forth. Is it Robert or Robert? I believe it's Robert. Okay. Um, he's their bigger X factor, because I think he has a higher ceiling. I think Makata is who I bet on, but Robert has a better upside um so we'll see there but and then go ahead i was gonna say and that's why i why uh, that's why i find the white Sox so interesting because they have three guys in mancada jimenez and 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 robert who have just stupid high ceilings and so that's you know if you're talking about a team that like if you were to do some kind of you know mlb tv power rankings for teams that you want to keep an eye on like anytime the white Sox are at bat and anytime those three in particular are at the plate you want to see what's going to happen because man alive, they have just a sick amount of talent between the three of them. So what do you think Robert's going to be? Like when you look at him, what do you think is in store for him this year and beyond? It's hard to say because, I mean, you look at what he did in the minor leagues last year. And I mean, he basically destroyed every level. He destroyed every level of the minor he's touched. You know, it's a, it's a Vlad Guerrero type situation where it's just like, there's no level of the minors that's been able to contain, you know, he was, he hit 297, 341, 634 as a 21 year old in AAA. That's absurd. That was his first at AAA. And he did that at 21. You know, I mean, what you see when you look at his numbers is something similar to Mancata and to Jimenez, where it's a lot of strikeouts, and not a lot of walks. There's a ton of power. There's a ton of speed. You know, you wonder about kind of refining those base running instincts. He got caught 11 out of 11 out of 47 times last year. So his, I mean, it's a 77% rate, which is above break even, but you want, ideally you want to see a little more, especially given that, you know, this dude has, uh, I, I actually, I don't remember any, unfortunately, I don't think is, uh, I was going to say, I'm trying trying to look up quickly his MLB pipeline thing, but I, I actually don't think he's on the pipeline anymore. But um, 
regardless, like a ton of speed, a ton of power. Again, it's just a matter of the swing and miss walk rate. I think what might actually help him this year, it's since it's just a 60 game season, he's going to get the advantage of two things. One is that he's not going to have to deal with hitting the rookie wall the way, the way a lot of other guys do. Cause he was going to be in this, he was going to be in the opening opening day lineup barring injury because of the big contract they gave him. So he was going to be out there and I, I imagine he would be, the, he would have been the regular center fielder too, because there's no one else in that roster aside from Adam Angle or, or Lurie Garcia, who should be playing that position. And it looks like Garcia is probably going to be the starting second baseman. So I can't imagine there's any reason to start Adam Angle over Lewis Robert unless I guess injury. So regardless, so he's not going to have to deal with, with the, with the rookie wall uh, or any, or any basically any like mid season exhaustion or just winding down. And because it's only a 60 game season and because I think obviously also coronavirus and, and the pandemic has impacted so much of kind of the preparation these guys get to do. There's, I think less of a chance that opposing pitchers are going to quote unquote, figure him out a 60 game season. than they wouldn't hundred two. There is just less, there's going to be, Let's book him. Pitchers aren't going to have, you know, that much more time to kind of figure out, you know, what's his, what does he struggle with? What are his weak spots? I'm great that like, I mean, major league teams are smart. They already know probably in advance what it is that the Robert is good, is good with or, or struggles with, but it's going to be, I think, easier for him to deal with not having to kind of make that big second adjustment, you know, that I think all that I think a lot of rookies have to make, or probably every rookie has to make, um, once you kind of get past midseason, once once kind of once everyone in the league is kind of taking a look at you, once there is video of you, once pitchers have faced you and kind of know, okay, these are his tendencies. This is what he likes to do. So he, he's going to get the benefit of that, I think. Um, the downside, obviously, is that in 60 games, he, that's not really a lot of time for him to just get any reps, um, which is going to maybe have an impact on him going forward. And certainly, there's also the possibility that he has a terrible 60 game stretch, which is you know possible for everybody. Um, that affects him going forward, but I think more likely than not, you know, he, he probably, I think he's a guy who's going to have a good season because like I said, the, the, you know, he doesn't really have to deal with kind of the difficulties that most rookies have to deal with if they're going to play a, a full or close to a full season. And the nice thing for Robert too, is that, you know, in, in becoming the White Sox center, feature, he, the bar is really low for him. They got nothing out of that position last year. It was mostly angle and Garcia and they're both terrible hitters. So, and, and that's the thing I remember. He great. He's his scouting report. You know, every scouting report says he's a good defender. If not, a, if not, a, with the potential to be a great defender, all he has to do is just be good defensively and be even just league average offensively. And he has already given the White Sox what would probably end up amount to being a two to three win boost just by doing that. Because man, man alive, did that team get nothing out of center field last year between Angle who can't hit and Garcia who can't hit. And whoever else they kind of floated through that position, Jay, Ryan Cordell, just total replacement level, nothing. Um, so I, I think he's going to have a good year, or at least I think the, I think the, uh, what was I going to say? I think the, I think the, the kind of fates are in his favor. I think short season is probably in his favor and probably in the favor of all rookies too. And just kind of giving them less time or less exposure uh, for major league pitchers kind of to work off of. We got to talk about Giolito at some point on this podcast, and um, I'm going to read. Oh, Lucas Giolito, smart guy. Yeah, I think we should. We're going to talk White Sox. Um, I'm not even close to where I want to be as a complete product. Giolito said recently, um, his numbers. I mean, he's 25. He's Mankata's age. 
he he doesn't see himself as like he's figured it out. He he can get better. Um, I don't know. His walk rate was down to eight point one percent last year. Like he uh, he's good. He's striking people out. Eleven strikeouts um, per nine. Like, what do you think Giolito can still be with this White Sox team? I mean, the funny thing is, like, what he did last year is, one, pretty much what you would have hoped for. I mean, 220 strikeouts and 176 innings, awesome, you know? He was great. He was just flat-out great. There's, there's, You look at his profile, and, you know, you try to see, okay, what can he do better? What, you know, what could be better? And it's like, not that much, man. He had a walk rate, you know, he had a, a walk rate of just 8%, a strikeout rate of 32%. You know, he's throwing 95-plus. He's averaging 94 miles an hour with his fastball. You know, he has big swing and miss rates. He has, you know, he throws a lot of strike, works in the strike zone, but doesn't give up a lot of contact. You know, there's, there's nothing where you look at him and go, oh, he got lucky last year. No, it was legit. It was all legit. And, and so I guess the question that becomes, okay, if it weren't lucky and it's legit, then what else is there kind of for him to build on? And you look and say, like, okay, he's giving up a little too much hard contact. Um, you know, his, his secondary pitches are – Carbo doesn't really throw that thing very much. You know, it's mostly fastball change with a little bit of a slider. You know, is, is there some refinement on those secondary pitches he can do? Possibly. I mean, the changeup and slider both have strike – or both have swing and miss rates about 40%. I'm not sure how much better he can get with those two things. You know, the, the curveball is really the only pitch that doesn't really work for him, and it's the one he throws by far the least. You know, could he get better? Sure. You know, there's there's no there's nothing that says he can't. But at the time, you know, again, you you look at his numbers, and you you know, there's this is the thing that when you when you see him make that kind of leap, where you look at the numbers, you go, okay, not only what changed, but also did what is what changed a fluke. And it's just you know across the board, I just don't really see anything that suggests to me that, that any part of what he was doing was, was fluky. You know, it, it, he's getting more swings and misses and walking fewer guys. And, you know, I think, you know, if there's one thing, maybe, you know, get a few more ground balls, he had, you know, his ground ball rate drop. But I think, you know, that, that to me, part of that is he, he stopped throwing a sinker, which, you know, is, is the kind of, um, is the popular move for pitchers nowadays? Stop throwing sinkers and two seamers, because they, they don't you don't get strikeouts with those. They get put into play, and balls being put into play is bad, unless they're a lot of ground balls. And even though he did get a fair amount of ground balls, that sinker wasn't doing much for him. Hit batters hit 274 with a 440 445 slugging percentage against it in 2018. That's it's not great. So there's not even really like anything you look at like in terms of. I mean, I, I haven't looked obviously close enough and I'm not a pitching coach by any stretch of the imagination. So I can't say, Oh, he needs to sequence better or his tunneling isn't great or, you know, whatever. Just looking at the numbers we have through stack cast or fan graphs, like there's nothing really that stands out where it's like, that's a problem going forward. The only thing you can really say is maybe the ground ball rate is a little too low, but when you're striking out 30% of the guys you face, that doesn't really matter as much. So for me, Giolito is, based on what he did last year, I mean, obviously there'll be probably a little bit of regression just because, you know, it do be like that sometimes, but at the same time, like he's this good. I mean, the dude was a number one prospect for a reason. Like it's just that he finally, you know, the, the, the white Sox got him to ditch the sinker. They got him to 
you know, get a little more, a little more movement on his changeup, which I think has been big, especially, you know, vertically, just get a little more drop on it. Uh, his four seamer has a better vertical movement too. You know, his, there's just more going on there. I think that just, and, and then that thing, like you, you, everything you read about Giolito is that he's one of those extremely thoughtful, um, stats oriented guys who dives into all the numbers, dives into the research is very big into, um, you know, he, he did the, I'm going to call it a brain elizer, but it's not really a brain elizer. He just, he does neuro, you know, he does neurological studies to, to kind of, so I think a lot of this for him seemed like it was, but also, but Giolito has also done this and I, I'm going to look this up because I, I want to get the exact thing he did. Um, he did, um, I'm going to find it. Hold on one moment. Uh, I can't, I wish I could remember who wrote it too. That's the part. Uh, he definitely, was the Washington Post he piece? definitely kind of bought in maybe, but he definitely bought into a lot of the driveline stuff. Um, he's done, he did a lot of that work. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like, he, he's a guy who thinks very hard about this stuff and very clearly is big into pitch design, pitch sequencing, all of that stuff. So, that's, if anything, I feel good about him being able to do this because it's a combination of the talent that's always been there. You know, just needed to be developed and refined and, you know, there's some mechanical stuff that needed to be adjusted and, and whatnot. And ditching the sinker obviously is big. It's it's a marriage of that talent and the the thought pattern behind it and the you know being able to understand how do I make this pitch do what I want you know and I think that's where he's at I think he's figured out a way to make it work like that. Their second baseman, Nick Madrigal, first round pick a couple years ago, first baseman Andrew Vaughn. They're on their sixty man roster right now. Who are you more excited about, and who do you think? Like we we know the big three, but like between the two of them, they're kind of like forgotten first round picks the last couple of years of the White Sox. Are you excited at all about either of them? What could they do this year? I think Vaughn is probably a long shot to contribute, if only because that first base DH position is pretty clogged for the White Sox between Jose Abreu and Edwin Encarnacion. Yeah. Plus they have James McCann, um, who's going to be backing up Yasmani Grandal, but I imagine will filter into the DH road um, and first base. Rotation uh, back Collins and one of their first rounders from back in 2016 is, is going to be a guy I imagine they turn to there. So I, I can't imagine Vaughn is going to have too much of an impact. I think more than anything, he is in the 60 man pool um, because you know he, he really he has not played a full minor league season yet and will not until next year at this rate. So I think that's more. I, I think that's more developmental than anything. Yerman Mercedes is another guy um, in that kind of who I think would be a, a better bet in that 60 man pool to take some first base uh, DH, maybe even catcher at bats if someone gets hurt. Madrigal, I think, is the one I'm more interested in because he has a much easier path to the majors. Because, like I said, right now the, the, the White Sox starting second baseman is Glory Garcia, who can't hit. Um, you know, per, like a perfectly fine option just to be at the bottom of the lineup and, you know, because he's a decent defender, can play. But he's really better cast as a utility guy who can just kind of play all over the infield, play a little outfield, you know, can spot some guys as needed, a good pinch runner. You know, you want Madrigal to have that job. And Madrigal, I think, is also interesting because he is a Jeff McNeil type and one of those 
high contact, never strikes out kind of guys that basically don't exist in baseball anymore. You know, it's really like, and it's always the same. It's always like the semi-wiry infielder like Jeff McNeil or, or David, uh, David Fletcher. Yeah, I mean, back in the day. But like nowadays, it's really like you look at the guys who have hmm. um, oh, um, with the highest uh, contact rates. Who is um, not Neil. I guess Neil Walker maybe a little bit. I'm trying to think who else really qualifies for this. Uh, there's someone. Wasn't there another man? It's, like it's really like it. On? The guy who was literally great for the last couple of years. Oh, why am I blanking on? He was in the Nationals recently. Why am I losing? Not Matt Adams. Was it Matt? Like, who am I blanking on? Are you talking about uh, as Drupal Cabrera? No. Oh, my God. This is going to drive me nuts. Keep going. Oh, Howie Kendrick? This, this is driving me nuts. Well, regardless, like, you know, those high contact types who, who never really strike out, they're not, like, it, it's guys like David Fletcher, Kevin Newman, um, obviously, Mookie Betts, Jose Ramirez. I mean, they're they're all-stars and MVPs in this list, too, but it's, I think Nadrigal kind of fits more in that Jeff McNeil um, side of the equation because I don't, he doesn't really have the big power. You know, he's, he's not a guy who, who's going to hit a ton of home runs. I, I don't know. I can't tell him. Um, but I think he's definitely a very good shot to win uh, the second. I don't know if the, the White Sox are going to treat this. Uh, I guess they call, everyone's calling it summer camp, which is whatever. <laughs> but I don't know if they're going to treat this period as an open competition or whether it's going to be something like where it would have been like in spring training where it's, you know, there's a chance for him to win a job outright. You know, or if he's just kind of there as a break in case of emergency, if a guy like Garcia gets hurt. But I mean, if I'm Chicago, honestly, sink or swim with him. Throw him in there. I mean, the dude hit 331 at AAA last year, 341 at Double A. You know, again, there's not a whole lot of power here. He's only 5'7, 165 pounds, or that's the listed uh, height and weight on baseball reference. He's not a big guy. You know, he never, he has never hit more than four home runs in a season at any level of, of, college or, or professional baseball he's not going to hit for power but he's going to hit for average he's got a little bit of speed he can steal some bases you know he's not and he doesn't strike out last you want to know how many here, here's the strikeout to walk ratio in the minors last year across three different levels 16 strikeouts 44 walks <laughs> like 2018 was i mean 2018 he only played 43 games but smiling down somewhere 173 plate appearances in 2018 across three different levels. He struck out five times. Last year, those 16 strikeouts were in 532 plate appearances. He doesn't strike out. Granted, he doesn't walk either. And I think that's probably why he ends up more in the David Fletcher, um, Jeff McNeil side of things, because those guys don't really take walks or, or strike out much either. They just make tons of contact. And I, I don't see why you wouldn't just throw him in the mix or just throw him in the starters world second base move Lurie Garcia back to that utility role and just roll with it. I, I don't think this is a guy who's going to necessarily be overwhelmed by major league pitching because he's shown an ability to make consistent contact everywhere, you know? And I don't really see what upside Garcia brings that Madrigal wouldn't cancel. I mean, if, if the idea is you don't want to, I mean, no, maybe this is a contract thing. you don't want to get his, uh, you don't want to get his, his, his clocks running too early, his service time clock running too early. Or maybe they're afraid that, you know, they'd rather have him just kind of take hacks at a lower level right now. But again, the guy went to AAA last year as a 21-year-old and hit three and hit uh, 297. You know, oh, I'm sorry, that's that wrong. He went to AAA last year at the age of 22 and hit 331. That, that doesn't sound like a guy who's, who's going to have that hard a time adjusting to major league hitting. You know, if he's, if he's already capable of doing that against, against uh, 
competition that's on average five years older than he is. And, you know, AAA, which is loaded with ex-major league pitchers, you know, I, I don't think the White Sox need to worry too much that he needs to develop more. And, and he's not going to develop in, a, in the 60-man pool anyway. You know, those guys are just going to be playing glorified intra-squad scrimmages for the entire summer. You know, there's not, there's not really – I, I don't think this is a guy – again, you know, he was drafted as a college junior. You know, this is not a, this is not a kid who was drafted out of high school with a lot of raw tools, but, you know, no, he, he knows what he's doing. You know, he's a, he's a, he's an older college kid. Like, you know, the same, the same, I think I imagine the same mindset in drafting him applied to drafting Andrew Vaughn, which is that, yeah, these guys may have slightly lower ceilings because they're already older, but at the same time, their floors are that much higher because, you know, they've already proven they can handle themselves at a high level of competition and you don't really need to worry that there's that there's something missing in the total package. Vaughn is another guy where you look at his numbers from college, and I know he he barely played um, last year, but yeah, like he's you don't need to worry so much about those guys. They they know what they're doing. And I should also note I don't really think Vaughn is 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 a realistic option. He he, he didn't get any higher than advanced A ball last year. He didn't hit all that well in either level of A ball. He saw. So I think that's probably something where the White Sox are probably content just to have him hang around the 60-man pool, playing whatever the whatever interest squad games they have going, you know, keep working with coaches. But Madrigal is someone who's already shown he, his hit tool is advanced enough that he can be in the majors right now. So I, I, to me, it's like okay, if that's the case, and and again, when you have when the only guy in your way is Lurie Garcia, I don't I don't just give the job to Madrigal and just go from there. You know, it's fair. And I agree. Um, last thing we have to wrap up here. Um, Jose Abreu, do you think he's going to gonna be on the trade block again this year? It's a, it's a, it's a tradition in Chicago that Jose, it's a tradition, a tradition unlike any other. <laughs> and here you can add Why the twinkly little master. Like, I just don't understand it. Like I've never understood it. He's fine. I, well, I think like, if you look at what the, I mean, like you said, the, this rebuild started pretty much in earnest after the 2016 season. Um, Jose Abreu turned uh, 30 between the 2016 and 2017 seasons. So, you know, if you're a, if you have a team where now you got rid of Chris Sale, you got rid of Adam Eaton, you got rid of you know uh, whoever else was involved in that teardown, I've already forgotten. You know, why keep around a 30 year old first baseman who's making um, who's making a, uh, eight figures a year? You know, when you can maybe move him for prospects that the White Sox haven't is honestly kind of strange. I don't know if that's they've just not find the right partner or if it's been something where Brave has just said, I want to stay here. I don't care if there's a rebuild like I like being in Chicago. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know what goes on in the White Sox front office at this point, but. I, I mean, nothing else like. The, you know, the funny thing is now he's got a, a good lineup around him, but he's, you know, he's, he turned 33 in January. He's definitely going to be reaching the downside of his career, but you know, the, the White Sox still have him on the hook for this year, plus two more years beyond that. Um, so there's no real incentive to move him in terms of, of free agency coming up and not, not resigning him or not being able to move him. I'm not entirely sure that he's going to be, he's a guy who's really going to be too much in demand unless someone gets hurt if only because, you know, he's a pretty immobile first baseman who doesn't, doesn't walk a lot and his, his only real trait is power, but he's slow. You know, he's not a great 
uh, not a very patient hitter. You know, last year he was only worth two wins above replacement. The year at one point five. Not really. That's not really a guy you give up prospects for. And you know, maybe maybe the White Sox missed their win on that. But even if you know, regardless, if they did or didn't. Like I, I don't really see him being, especially with the deadline being so close now to the start of the season. It really, I think, would take like a, a season-ending injury for a contender to one of their to their first baseman. You know, whoever whoever that happens to be, and it's got to be a contender where for some reason that the only thing is first base is usually a pretty deep position for most teams. You know, they usually have um, a guy floating around they can plug in there, can hit it decently. And I don't know maybe maybe the universal DH changes some of that. Maybe there's an NL team that really finds itself. You know, they don't really have a good option to plug in there. Maybe they come asking around. But again, because the trade deadline's happening so early in the season. I don't really think it would make sense for the White Sox to go, well, it's been seven games. We might as well give up and trade Jose Abreu. You know, unless for some reason, um, I, I think if this were been a normal season, they have Andrew Vaughn in the minors. He gets the double A. He's raking. You know, Abreu's playing okay, but not great. You know, they're kind of floating around at or below 500. You know, they're not really in the playoff picture. Maybe if they get hot. Yeah, then if it had been a regular season with those considerations – yeah, maybe they just go ahead and dump a Brave and just say, you know what, what we, we'll take what we can get. You know, we need to move Andrew Vaughn because he's the future. You know, we can live with Zach Collins or whoever else at that position for the time being, or we just call Vaughn up and just and get him going. But I think the, the shortness of the season, how close the trade deadline is to the start of the season, the fact that a Brave is not really going to be worth very much at this point on the trade market, I, I just don't see them moving him. I don't even really see him being available. Because I think the other thing is this, I, I imagine Rick Hahn feels like this team can contend. You know, I don't think they're a world, they're a serious World Series contender. I don't think they're going to win the division. But I think if nothing else, they're a wild card contender. And, you know, I, I just see, I just see, I have a hard time seeing them selling, especially so close to the start of the season. You know, if they finally have built this team. And like you said, it's taken them years. Some of that is, you know, a lot of their pitching prospects broke. You know, it's Mankata was young and still needed some development, it, you know, like, and as noted, they, they struck out badly on a lot of their free agent signings, but you know, now they finally have a roster that looks like it's capable of contending. So I imagine they just keep a brave and just, you know, maybe next season or this coming off season, rather, you know, maybe, maybe then the talk becomes, okay, he's got two years left on his contract. Vaughn is looked good in whatever it was he did. You know, maybe we can do some talking, but again, I just, I just don't see his trade market being particularly robust anyway. There's just not a lot he offers beyond power and the ability to stand at first base. And that's the other thing. He can't play anywhere else. He is yeah. a first baseman slash DH only. Like, in assuming that the, the NL doesn't adopt the DH going forward, I think they probably will, but who knows? You know, half the league's not going to be interested, realistically speaking, because he's, not a, he's also not a good defensive first baseman. He's pretty mediocre, if not bad. So... You know, you're getting him just for his power, and in a in a in a league where I, we'll, we'll have to see how home runs what home runs are like this this season, but in a league where power is you know more abundant than ever, I can't really see someone deciding to take on what's left of his contract and give up a useful prospect to have basically like a slightly richer man's like Yuli Gurriel. Is that even fair to either of them? Because Gurriel's like Gurriel's actually better at this point. Although Guriel Guriel's older, that's why I, I know this is not about Yuli Guriel, but it always kind of blows my. He's thirty six years old. Like okay. he's he's not a young guy. No, he's only been in the league for 
four years, not even really, because 2016 he only played 36 games, but you know he's already 36. He spent so much of his career in Cuba, I think which is a shame for him, but regardless. He's looked 36 since he came. Does he? Yeah, he looks old. He moves all That's, he looks is another guy who's just... What's the thing? Abreu is another guy who he debuted when he was like 28, and you, you look at him and go, no, you're 42. You look just <laughs> middle-aged, just permanently. Yeah. So The king of that is uh, Juan Franco. Just the all Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That's I, a good one. I miss him. I miss him. Uh, we all do. Well, anyway, um, that's all I've got today, John. So we will be right. back next week. Who are we doing next week? Before we're a couple weeks away from baseball, who are we back, who are we back with? Good question. Um, what are the teams? I guess now that we don't have expanded playoffs, like it's – do we finally want to do the Padres? Do we finally want to get get on your your preferred? Yeah, give me some your AJ preferred Preller. dark horse contender. Love me some Preller. You want to you want to yak about the Padres? I love that. I love that the Padres have Jerks and Profar and Jorge Mateo now. They're just collecting <laughs> all the former top infield prospects from the last five years who went bust somewhere else. But you love I mean, San Diego is definitely super interesting. That lineup is a lot of fun. A pitching staff, less so. But the bullpen, there's there's a lot going on with this team, and yeah, and I know you I know you really like them as a. I think they're another like team the that if they're another team that if if there had been expanded playoffs, like we'd definitely be talking about them as a wild card team. As is, they're a tough time, but yeah, let's, let's talk about the Padres finally. Let's do it. All right, John, we'll be back next week. Padres next Wednesday. I will talk to you later, sir. Sounds good, dude. Hi, this is Chuck Dowdle of Bulldogs Roundtable, and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Be sure to check out Chase's website at chasethomaspodcast.com and follow the Stone Mountain Native on Twitter and Facebook and listen to my show, Bulldog Roundtable, every Tuesday and Thursday from 9 to 9.30 on 680 The Fan. Have a great Bulldog Day, everybody. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. The first official Chase and Sully are fans. And uh, soon to be alumni of the same same school, University of Tennessee. That's right. We're both Vols. That's right. I love I love that news that two months ago where you tweeted that out. I got really excited. Super excited for you. I am uh I am excited to be there. And it's it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, I met D'Angelo Gibbs when I was up there last week. Um, really, cool. there you go, Georgia transfer. Going to be really, really uh, a, a big part of that Tennessee offense this year. Super nice kid. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. I, I uh, he's he's a stud on the field for sure. Um, can I tell you that uh, my <laughs> my dad uh, was with me and my family and everything, and uh, we were talking to Gibbs and. He just starts going off on Garantano. And I'm like looking oh, at my no. dad and I'm trying to get him to stop. Like my dad and I are both very opinionated people. My dad does not shy away from his opinions. And he's just like <laughs> railing into Garantano. And he's like, that guy just sucks. Like he's not going to be your quarterback this fall, right? And I'm just like staring at <laughs> Gibbs and I'm just like, Gibbs. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, he's in a bind right here. 
and I'm not like it, it was it was complicated, but it was it was wild. And um, my dad gotta love dads. Yeah, you gotta. And I was like, Dad, what is he supposed to say here? You know, that's his quarterback. That's who's gonna be under center. Like he's not gonna like. What are you trying to do here? Um, You're right. But so it was funny. Fine. And then he was talking up Harrison Bailey for uh, the next five minutes. But Harrison Bailey, I was watching some tape on him today. Like, did you know his coach referred to him as the next Peyton Manning? Coach oh, I see it. Dude is a is a long, just gunslinging, nasty quarterback, and I cannot wait to see what he got. And you, I shoot if if JG goes down the path that he did to start the season and doesn't continue his ways that he that he started to string together some pretty good performances, especially yep. against Missouri there towards the end of the year. And, mm-hmm. And we're really taking care of the football, which is his biggest issue, decision-making. And sometimes he just makes his head scratching decisions and, and back-breaking decisions. And if he starts the season out doing stuff like that, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have a, a quick trigger and and, and put, it, put in the young stud just to see what he's got. But what not to mention, Mauer? I mean, you got Mauer, too. That's what I was about to say. Not to mention, Mauer's, Mauer's still going to be competing, too. I wouldn't I – wouldn't, he, he showed signs of life. He had a couple of really, really nice throws um, when he was playing. And, and do what? There's a joke. Oh, yeah. There, but I'm showing signs of like, Yeah, right. That man <laughs> yeah. Um, could have 37 concussions one season, and he's going to keep playing. Oh, seriously. Uh, he took some big hits. Was, no. He's, he's a walking, talking pincushion <laughs> and, and continues to get back up. And give JG credit to you, though. All of them did. Uh, but – Hey, they've whoever is taking snaps uh, from under center. There, it's a quite a 180. Uh, I, I haven't been this excited about a Tennessee offensive line in years. Uh, they're they're not going to be pincushioned for long. Uh, that you got five stars across the board, and I think that's that, that's the one position uh, where it, where you look at the roster and you. And we got to be honest, obviously, normally going into a football season, you're talking about health and you're talking about ACLs and, and, and the like, but everybody's going to be tested for depth uh, with the current state of, of COVID going into the season. And I, I think offensive lines, like I said, whoever, whoever is the one where you could lose a guy or two and be fine. And whoever's taking snaps, whether it's JG Mauer or, or, or Bailey, it's, it's, they're going to be they're going to be able to, to to have some time back there. It was interesting because I was listening to the Vols Quest, um, the rivals, uh, Tennessee site. They they have a really good podcast, mm-hmm. and I was listening to them talk about the different quarterbacks. And something that they made a good point about with JG is that the reason that Cheney likes him and trusts him is that like he's the only quarterback that can read a defense. So like even with his dumb right. decision making from time to time, like when he gets up to the line, he checks down and he understands what the defense is giving him. Like Cheney trusts him the most right. to be like, okay, they're doing this. Here's what they're showing me. I know where I need to go. Like he might not take chances. He might be very conservative, but like he more than any other quarterback just like can read the defense better than them. And that's a really valuable thing to Cheney. Absolutely. And, and you, I mean, it's, it's a tough spot for Bauer to come in against Florida on the road down. And he, he had a few throws in his first few possessions. You're like, all right, this kid could do it, but he was during the headlights and he definitely progressed throughout the season. Um, but you're right. It, it, you could see it was, it was a, a little bit of just a happy feet and, and a little during the headlights back there and wasn't going through his progressions and not having a spring too. 
to, to get more reps definitely hurts him. And that, that hurts Bailey too. So I, I think it, it, it's definitely JG's spot for sure. And, and he, I, it, I think it will be in, until, until the wheels fall off and hopefully they don't. I, I think he, he might've turned a corner there towards the end of 2019. You know what's interesting too when you look at this schedule, like nine and three is very, very doable. Ten and two is mm-hmm. eh, nine and three feels right. No. If they play twelve games, that makes the most sense. They've got a very manageable schedule. A lot we'll we'll know a lot after Oklahoma and Florida. Like if they split that right. one and one, they're going nine and three. If they don't and they go over two, then it's like uh then Jeremy creates in some hot water because then you're looking at eight and four and they won eight games last year, and then you're like, ooh, have we like he has to split those, I think. I, I, yes and no. I, I think eight and four again with an, with another bowl game with with a bowl win and uh, in, in an outback bowl or something along those those lines. I think he's going to be a okay. I, I think quarterback play. I, we were talking on on the pod before we were taping the pod this week. Uh, we broke down the SEC that to be released next week after the fourth, um, and and. Going through over unders in Tennessee's at seven and a half last time I checked, and I think if I said my comment was if you roll out a, a if you if you roll out a, a halfway decent corpse at quarterback, you're going to be able to get eight wins. Um, and it, you and you look at the four that are up in the air that you were just mentioning two of them: Oklahoma at Oklahoma September twelfth, uh, Florida September twenty sixth, Alabama uh, third. Uh, October 24th, third Saturday, October, of course. Uh, and then, um, then you got Georgia. Uh, at Georgia. Yeah. yeah back end of the season, November 14th. Out of those four, uh, I think, I think Oklahoma by far is, is, is the best matchup. Even if you're at Norman, you're going to be playing in front of a raucous crowd. It's, it's the second week of the season. You got a, a an experienced quarterback, probably going to be Spencer Rattler, but, it, 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 three key stats in this game for Tennessee. I really think that they get they they can get an advantage. Somebody tweeted out. I don't know if you saw it about a, a month ago that got Vol Twitter up in a storm. That, it, that OU doesn't have a defensive lineman over three hundred pounds. Hmm. That is very tasty <laughs> going up against a really big, very talented offensive line that has played together. Now now everybody knows each other except for K Bays, but I, I'm not having issues with him stepping in and immediately able to play. He'll be fine. He'll be okay. So that that that's that's a one really good check mark. Number two, uh, o- OU's defense had a really hard time forcing turnovers and causing havoc. And and when you look at a Tennessee team, like we were mentioning with JG, they took care of the ball down the stretch, and that's when they started reeling off wins. When it when when they weren't turning the ball over and and pounding the rock and and making good decisions and not bone bone you know or uh, uh, head scratching decisions, then. They they were winning ball games. And the last one, OU had one of, if not the worst, Power Five red zone defense. Tennessee's red zone offense was atrocious. But if if you're able to to run the ball, and I think Tennessee will, and take care of the ball, and 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 play keep away from from Rattler in that offense, I think they got a shot in Oregon. You know, like it, and and on the flip side. Sure, Tennessee loses a lot up the with with Nigel Ward and Daniel Batuli going to the NFL, but they 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 have talent there. That that's that's something that that Pruitt is able to do is obviously recruit and and, and put some actual bodies like Henry Toto and 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 Q Crouch are two dudes that could start damn near anywhere in the SEC. 
So it, you're going to be able to get pressure on, on, on Rattler and, and for some, for some, uh, some sketchy decisions from him in the second, second start, who knows, man, I think that's the one that Tennessee could shock, shock some people. Oh, you are a lot more in on the Oklahoma game than I am. I will say, because I, I, I just Oklahoma. I, you're gonna have to. It's score not that. A I, lot. It's not, I don't think they're gonna be able to score enough. I just don't. I think they'll be. Maybe they keep it close early, but like the Bama game seems more enticing to me. And what we saw last year against Bama, and I, sure, Tennessee's getting closer. Like that one would be more doable. But if they were to beat Oklahoma, which insane immediately puts them on the map and then tennessee gets just all these unrealistic expectations after that which will suck but if they do that it makes the the other big three be like okay fine like if we go oh and three against this it's fine doesn't matter if we're close in those other three in the sec think, we're fine i think if you're playing alabama in the second game of the season i would agree with you i, I think a lot of it has to do how early it is but just Tennessee's death is at a lot of key spots at wide receiver at linebacker. Um, they have talent there, but it's you, you go into getting the October and, and who knows how many games we're going to get into the season, but man, and of course, Alabama, their big issue is, was, uh, injuries last year. They, they got decimated on defense. All those guys are back. If, if they stay healthy, I think they're going to roll. And, and be back in the title hunt, and there and and Mac Jones falls off. You know, you got Bryce Young right there, and sure he's, he missed the spring, but at, at that point he's he's going to have some some games where he could he could really sharpen his teeth. So, uh, I, yes, I, I think Alabama is the second one. I, I agree with you there, uh, and you get them at home. I, I wouldn't give Tennessee a chance against Florida. I think they're the best team in the East. Not uh, at home. I, I, no, I, not, I guess that's a little strong, but I, I, I like Florida this year. I think they're they're so going to be I. they're they're going to be better in Georgia. They're going to win the East. I, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, of Newman either. So I, I think Georgia's your, your your third team, even though it's on the road. It's not going to be in front of you know ninety thousand people. So that that's wait, do you have that's Georgia a big win? The third uh, in the East is that what you just said? No, that third team that Tennessee oh, can knock off. Okay. I have Georgia second. I was like, oh my yeah. god! Okay. Yeah, I think Florida, Florida out of those four, Florida, Florida games the hardest to get, in my opinion. Interesting. I would say the hardest is. I still think it's Oklahoma. I I don't know. I think Oklahoma's gonna be really good. And it would not surprise me if they're back in the playoff this year. Like that, I think I'm more sure about anything than I. I just the Cheney offense. Yeah, I think they're good. Versus, I, think, I think they're good. Then Lincoln Riley. And Spencer Rattler, I think Spencer but, Rattler but is going to be a monster. He is going to be a monster, but but Tennessee's going to be able to dial up pressure on him. Yeah, sure, that's a, a really good offensive line they have, but they 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 lo- they lost key weapons. Theo Howard's good, UCLA transfer. Uh, um, Rambo's good, but so Tennessee secondary is arguably one of the best in the SEC with Bryce Thompson, Alante Taylor, and Sean Chamber as a top three cornerback trio. That's, that's nasty, you know? So it's, it's not going to be like Rattler's going to have all time and he, he's going to have to throw into some tight windows. Man, I, I just like the matchups. I, I can't believe it. Across the board, OU's, this, man. I was not expecting you to go across this route. The board, across the board, OU's a better team, but it, I'm just saying out, out of the floor, I think that's because when you get them, when you get them week two, 
I, I like it. Okay. I I, I want to believe. I, I just um, it's going to take me some time, and now I got to do some more thinking. Um, your biggest Jim Cheney question in 2020 is what? Biggest Jim Cheney question: uh, How 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 can he pull a rabbit out of a hat with Jerry Garantano or a an experienced quarterback? You know, I, I think he's going to have to continue to develop that guy without a spring. Um, and because he's going to be able to Tennessee, the, the one thing that Cheney's going to have in his toolbox that he knows he can rely on is the running game. That that offensive line, like I said, is really good. Eric Gray is going to be a monster this year. Have guys in the backfield behind him too. I, I think I think the run game is going to be there to where he could he could adapt his, this offense to, to take a little bit of the weight off of the quarterback. Um, and I think that's my biggest question is, is when, when somebody like in Alabama or in a Georgia has a front seven that is going to be able to go toe to toe with that offensive line, what is he going to be able to do with, with that quarterback? What, I, Cause you saw two years ago, I think the, 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 the pre Cheney, um, you saw a win at Auburn where JG just had some jump balls and they went out at just, you know, was out athletic on the outside, out athleting. I just made up a word, but they're, they're between Callaway and the point between Callaway and Jennings, they, they, he threw some jump balls and that was the, that was the offense um, to, to beat Auburn. And those guys are gone. They're not going to be able to do, be able to throw some jump balls and, 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 some ducks and hope those guys can go make make plays. So it's, it's, there's going to be more emphasis in the quarterback to make some tight, tight throws, make smart decisions, and take that next step. And can you do it? That's literally the biggest question mark on this entire Tennessee team is is can can a quarterback emerge? And if they do, you're looking at nine months. Hmm. I just what would be your guess? Like what do you think actually happens? If you had to guess, do you think Garantano plays twelve games? Do you think they get Bailey in? Does Maurer just win the job? If you're what would be your best guess for how the quarterback situation unfolds? If you had to guess today. Uh okay. If I guessing today and we play twelve games and everybody's healthy and you take COVID out of it, I think JG plays twelve games. I think he's okay. He's, I don't think they want I, I think play. that offensive line no, I I don't think they do. I think they really, really want Jake to go out there and, and take command of this this position. Um, and you want Bailey to be able to sit back, red soak shirt. it all in, red shirt come up come in against Furman, Troy, and Vanderbilt. You know, you get 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 ten attempts and and in those games and call it a day. You know, and that's all you really want from him. And I, I think if if JG can stay healthy. I think he will continue to be good enough with this run game to 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 stay in twelve games. I, I think so. Um, that's just decision of what I saw there towards the end of the season. What would plain and simple? What would Tennessee fans be okay with? What's the lowest they can go this year for Tennessee fans to be happy? Is it eight and four in a bowl win? Is that the minimum? Seven. seven I would say seven and five in a bowl win. Eight and five would be the the minimum of seven seven wins. Like if you if you drop a a Kentucky game and win the rest of them and win the bowl game, they're not going to be happy. But like it, what, what how it's still the key is how do you look in the games that you're 
you're kind of outgunned. You know, it, 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 at Tennessee, the job's always going to be Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. How do you look in those games? You know, if, if you're playing, if you repeat the Alabama game last year and give Florida and Georgia a, a, a closer game than what you did, I, I think Tennessee fans are happy. Yeah. We need to do something about Pruitt on uh, primetime. Did you watch him on Dan Patrick this morning? I did not catch his his, uh, his appearance on Dan Patrick. I, I did see that he confirmed that there have been zero players uh, yeah. um, with, with, with COVID, so that's good. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't see the rest of it. How did he look? He's um, not <laughs> – I would love to see him in a room with the recruit because him on uh, Dan Patrick and interviews, I see him with him like, I, I don't know. There's not a lot of like happiness there. Not a lot of personability. I, I don't know. Like, I think, it, I, it's think very I think he's a, I think he just, I think he just hates doing those. Yes, it's he does. Your classic Saban. He doesn't you know. No, I Saban think he loves hates. it. That's the misnomer. Is Saban actually loves that shit? Saban loves to be a dick. Yes. Yeah. But he also loves interviews. Like Saban's gonna be on like game day after he retires. Like he's gonna be in the media. Saban loves that. He just did the documentary with Belichick. Like oh, yeah. ten. They oh yeah. Like oh, the- they love it. Pruitt right. actually, I think, hates it. No, I, yeah, Pruitt hates it. I, I think Pruitt Pruitt definitely hates it. I, I think he is. He, you talk to any of his players that, that have played for him, even going past Tennessee. Uh, and you know, go back to Alabama, Georgia, whatever, and they all love him. Like they, they would run through a wall guy, and that's well. I, I think Tennessee, me, and, and the rest of Tennessee fans are hanging their hat on. He's got a really good staff that they recruit really well, and, and his players love him. And and that's more than anything that the previous staff could say. So, that can he develop, and and can they get a quarterback? Or now, now he's now the two big question marks. Well, so, not, not too concerned about the deep. I think they got. I think that. I think Bailey's going to be it. I think yeah. Bailey's going to be it. You're right. So we'll see. But the, you, you can't count your chickens before they're hatched. We hadn't, hadn't even seen a snap from him yet. So uh, I remember when we thought the guy was Jonathan Crompton, five star from North Carolina. So never know. True, but he also beat Georgia like forty-five to to ten that year with Kiffin. So Crompton wasn't. That was that. weird. People was, really hated. Oh, I, it, 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 he he got a bad stick, but I, I think the the five star label kind of hurt him because he was. I don't know. Uh, uh, Two thousand nine was definitely a weird year to where Kiff, and that shows you how good of a coach Kiff can be on the offensive side of the ball. Like holy smokes, you know? Yeah. Like they and 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 and, and that whole offensive staff did a really good job with Crompton. That was, that was a, a, a weird year to, to say the least. Weird, weird year. Beat Georgia, blow them out and then get blown out by Virginia tech in the peach bowl. I don't, I don't know. That was, I feel like, well, how, how far, if, if you gave Kippen four years in the sec and didn't leave for SC, would he won the East? Oh, you said, I think he would have. You mean four years at Tennessee? Yeah, does he stays four years at Tennessee? Does he win the East at that point? If they don't get put on probation, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What he did no, I'm talking about recruiting, I think yes. I think if he doesn't get him from put on probation, yeah. he has a four year run. Put on probation, right? They right. they win the East, yes. Yeah, I think they win the East. Like he you know? invested I think, more, I think that's... like just the Bryce Brown and just everybody around. Like he put more talent on the field. New, new Richardson. Yeah. 
Oh who was my the goodness. free yeah. safety who got kicked off like after he was gone? Who was really great? Um, Demetrius Morley. No, the other one. Who it was like J- not Johnson. Jan- oh, James and Jackson. Yes, yes. James and Jackson was a stud. That that team was awesome. Right. Montori Hughes. That team had some talent on defense. He knew what he was doing, so, so I think he would have gotten talent. I just I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he was recruiting at a level that hasn't been seen until now. You know, Kiffin. So. Yeah, I think he would have probably been fine. And people hate Kiffin, but like, I don't know. I think I don't think he would have left if it was for any other job than USC. I think that no. Was, and, I think he just it was. And like, I'm, hindsight, I'm glad he left. You know, as a Tennessee fan, but uh, and and it, it, it his. It's so funny, the character arc of two coaches uh, with the Tennessee fan base, I would argue. First, Steve Spurrier. Vols fans could not stand that guy, and and rightfully so in the 90s with, with the, the torture he put, put Tennessee through, um, but and, and the jabs. But I, even going with the South Carolina days, but I, I, think, I think Tennessee fans have come around on him and, and, and kind of just respect him and, and enjoy him for what he was. You know, and, and almost missed that. Um, and then, and then Lane Kiffin too. Like it, it, having him on Twitter and, and, and him interact with with, with uh, Tennessee storylines, and, and and he's just he's got an incredible sense of humor. Uh, I, I think it's it's so funny. Ten years ago, if you asked me in 2010 if Tennessee fans would would like Lane Kiffin in a decade, I would have told I would have laughed you out of this building, you know. But I think it, there's there's almost a sense of. Um, I don't know. Enjoyment with both of those guys that 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 ball strings like, you know. I, I think they they like the prodding and the and the and the ridiculousness of both of them. And you know, I, I would have never I would have never guessed it a, a, a decade ago. Yeah. But I'm glad he's back in the SEC, man. And I cannot wait to to watch this whole Miss game. I cannot wait to the egg to, bowl uh, is going to be must see. If it wasn't already, the egg it, bowl is just it's my national championship. Like, Hundred percent. They. I did laughs around my grandmother's place. I was watching that. Uh, the the infamous piss piss and mess. Anyone who's actually mad about that, you can unfriend me. Like you're out of your mind. Right. That was my favorite moment of the year. Like what a all time moment. It's a rivalry. Like I don't care. Like he should have been celebrated. It shouldn't have been a penalty, and it should have. Like it was stupid, but it shouldn't have been a penalty. It was just like it was a college kid. AJ Brown got a penalty. AJ Brown got a penalty. He, he, I, I feel like he needed to get a penalty in the same game. You know, like you needed to, you need, you needed to keep a level playing field. You know, I think you you need to throw the flag, but just make the kick, man. Just make the kick. True, it's crazy. Uh, but it, but it led it led to Leach and Kiffin, and it, it, for that uh, we will forever be uh, indebted. Yeah, what a great way to wrap up a Tennessee podcast, Lane Kiffin. Um, I'm glad uh, Balls fans can <laughs> uh, we can escape Lane Kiffin, but at least it's not Butch Jones. Oh God bless! I I, I don't know when Tennessee's going to stop paying him, but it needs to be soon. Dude's still interning in in Tuscaloosa. Come on, stop running! What stop his next job's going to be? Palmer. He's going to get another job. He's going to get something. Oh, I think he's he's going to go to Central Michigan or mm. or Ohio or some random school up north and do just fine and yep. win, you know, win, win a conference title every once once every four years and he's and they're going to be badass at Northern Illinois, be a Husky legend. Yes, 
the guy the guy can coach football, just not not at the D one or the the Power Five level. I right. think he could. He's a hell of a coach at at you know Central Michigan, but the guy, the guy can recruit and 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 pour uh, pour snake venom and or, or snake oil into to recruit tears and and keep keep local guys home up in you know in Cincinnati and win games there. But yeah, no, be gone, be gone. <laughs> All right, Sully. Well, this was great. I appreciate the time. We're balls. Absolutely. Enjoy your time in Knoxville, man. We'll we'll definitely talk before you move on up there. Absolutely, sir. All right, buddy. Stay safe, and I will talk to you soon. Uh, Have a good one, brother. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. Goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.